I've been um, introducing my two oldest sons uh, to movies that are, uh, well, they're a little bit more engaging, a little bit more artistic, a little more intellectual than what's on typical offer by Marvel superhero movies. Not that those kind of movies don't have their place. Still, it's, it's good to graduate from, uh, I don't know, uh, sweet and sugary cereal to something a little bit more meaty. And recently, we worked through uh, the 2007 movie, There Will Be Blood, starring Daniel Day-Lewis and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. And for my money, it is one of the best movies of the last 20 years. It's not an easy movie to watch, but it is a very good movie to watch, I think. And it's a, uh, it's a visually stunning, well-crafted, well-acted meditation on the pursuit of greed and power. In fact, it very much reminds me of the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's that, that pursuit of greed and power is represented by the main character, uh, Daniel Plainview, and his pursuit to dominate the oil market uh, in the early 20th century California, and, and how those same pursuits can be found not just in the market, but in some American expressions of Christianity. Now, of course, the movie never directly tells you any of that. You never have a narrator or a character say, hey, y'all, that guy's a villain. Watch out for him. Never does that. No, like all good art, it, it, it never directly spells anything out. It never spoon feeds you its meaning. No, it invites you to make connections or to ask, why is the director using this color palette? Or, or zooming in on his face right now? Or why is the music uh, so triumphant or so uh, filled with tension right now? Now, on one level, anyone can understand what's happening as they watch this movie. There Will Be Blood is about two evil men competing against each other even as they, they need each other and try to use each other. But on another level, there is depth of meaning and nuance about the human condition that invites, really requires multiple viewings. So for example, the opening scene of the movie, and sorry, the movie is what, 14, 15 years old, so if this is a spoiler for you, sorry. Uh, too late. Uh, the opening scene tells you everything you need to know about the main character, again, his name is Daniel Plainview, as we watch him in silence, struggle to find silver in a mine he's digging by himself out in the California desert, only to find him then, several years later, having graduated to fumbling his way into digging for oil. During that time, zero words are spoken. No words are spoken. In fact, the first lines of dialogue don't show up until the 14th minute of the movie. After nine years have passed and Plainview has now become a very successful oil man. But in those 14 minutes, you see just how driven, how singular Plainview is in his desire to win and how he will sacrifice his body and his friends and his colleagues in order to get the win. Well, the book of John functions like this too, not that it's about a Daniel Plainview, but rather how artistic it is and how much it paints a picture for us. 
Now, it's not a historical account as we typically think of historical accounts. You know, if you've read any kind of historical text, sometimes it reads uh, like an instruction manual. It's so dry. No, this is a theological historical account of Jesus's life that reads very differently, really in many ways like a, a work of art, almost like poetry at times, in comparison to the other gospels. So sometimes John spells out things directly, as do the other gospels. But more often than not, like with chapter 21 that we're starting up with today, or really what we've seen throughout this entire series, which would be chapter 13 through 21, though you can see this all the way through the gospel, he is content to paint a picture that anyone can understand on the surface. Anybody can get it on the surface. Anyone can get the action, but that picture invites you to multiple viewings or really multiple readings. And John wants you to grow in your depth of understanding and in your maturity and make connections, not only throughout the rest of his gospel, but throughout the rest of scripture and in turn meditate on that. Well, our passage uh, is John chapter 21. We're going to be spending the next three weeks uh, finishing out the series on John 21. But today we're going to go through verse 14. So John 21, 1 through 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Well, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are the one who leads us through your Son and the power of the Spirit. And so we pray that you would lead us now to his word, that he would commune here amongst us through that same Spirit, that we might have eyes to see and ears, ears to hear, that he might be revealed to us, that we might love him and follow him and see just how good and wonderful he is. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. 
again through the same Spirit. Amen. Now, uh, before we get to the text proper, and there's a lot here, uh, the scholarly world, uh, as maybe you can imagine if if you're paying attention to the overall flow of John, they, they don't quite know, at least some scholars don't quite know what to do with chapter 21. Uh, some thinks it's, it's more like an appendix or, or maybe like a, a later edition that doesn't quite go with the rest of the book. Because as we saw last week, I mean, the book really does climax with Thomas's confession, uh, my Lord and my God. I mean, all of John has been building to that confession. And then John, uh, following that, gives the purpose of the book with these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That seems like a, a pretty good ending, like a natural spot to, to, to end. But then John seems to give uh, uh, completely, or really to change gears with, with three additional uh, stories. The big catch of fish, which we just read, and then Jesus asking Peter three times if he loves him, and then Peter questioning Jesus over John. And these don't seem to go with the flow, at least maybe from our perspective. They don't really seem to, to forward the action. And I'm not going to take the time to debate the various scholarly views because who wants to hear that? But, but I think the way to understanding why John continues with these stories is actually found with verse 29, where Jesus, it says, Jesus said to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So prior to this, the resurrected Jesus had revealed himself physically and visibly three times. First with with Mary on Easter morning, second with the disciples gathered on that first Easter evening, and then again a week uh, later when Thomas, who remember had expressed his, his virtually empiricist doubts, unless I see and I touch and put my finger in his wound, I'm not gonna believe. Later, a week with Thomas, who was with the disciples. So that, that's, you know, one time revealing Christ, the resurrected Christ, to an individual, but then twice with the disciples as a group. But Jesus, as we know the story, and keep in mind, John is one of the later written Gospels, Jesus would soon ascend into heaven. He would be away from their sight. How would Jesus reveal himself then? How does Jesus reveal himself now? How would he reveal himself to those who did not have the opportunity to see him? Which, by the way, is the overwhelming majority of Christians. Well, I think our passage answers that question. With verse 1, John emphasizes that Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples, but in this particular Way. So whenever you see an ancient Jewish writer repeat words like John does here with reveal, that's the Jewish way of emphasizing or, or underlining something important. So John wants us to see how Jesus revealed himself this time and how it's different from the previous ways he revealed himself to his disciples. Now, we read that they were by the Sea of Tiberias, which was the Roman name for the Sea of Galilee. Galilee was already thought of as a Gentile region within Israel, but by using the Roman name, I think John is emphasizing even more the Gentileness of the place and of the moment. Now, a little bit of time has passed, so let's just 
think about where this is in the story. A little bit of time has passed since the disciples last saw Jesus. And some of the disciples, not all of them, but some of the disciples, uh, namely Peter and Thomas and Nathaniel, James and John, otherwise known as the sons of Zebedee, and two others who are not named, so seven total disciples here, they've gone back home to Galilee, which is some 70 miles north of Jerusalem, and it would have taken some time to get there. So this is the same place where Jesus called Peter and Andrew off of their fishing boats and said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they did immediately follow him. It's also where in the very next story in in Matthew, where James and John, who were also fishermen, were called to follow Jesus. Now, in verse three of our passage, we read that Peter says, I'm going fishing. And the others say, we're with you, man. And so they go. Now, some have read this, this scene or that moment as a moral failure. In particular, as they, as they caught nothing. As in, why weren't the disciples going out and announcing the kingdom of God? Why weren't they baptizing and making disciples in Jesus' name? Why'd they go home and go back to fishing? That seems like they're reversing course. As, as if what we see here is like, uh, if you've seen the movie, like what happened with Inigo Montoya in The Princess Bride after he lost his sword fight to the Dread Pirate Roberts. As in, he went back to the beginning with his tail between his legs. Is that what's happening here with the disciples? Now, keep in mind that this story happened in that intervening period of 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. And so they have yet to receive the Great Commission. They haven't received that yet. So I, I don't think this is like Inigo Montoya. I, I don't think this is a moral failure. This isn't unfaithfulness. They are simply waiting on Jesus to act. And they've gone back home to their families, who they had left behind. They've gone back to their families, and they have needs. They need to eat. So they go to work as fishermen, just as Paul sometimes went to work as a tent maker. Now, we read that it's night, and assuming They were out all night fishing, which would have been not unusual whatsoever. They caught nothing for their efforts. But just as dawn was breaking, and this is, by the way, a familiar uh, salvation symbol in the Bible, whether it's with the Exodus or with, with Passover or with the resurrection, John tells us that Jesus was standing on the shore. It's daybreak. But the men on the boat, they did not know it was Jesus. So keep in mind, the Sea of Galilee is not a a small body of water. It's about 13 miles long. It's about eight miles wide. So by the time they actually get to to that point where they catch the fish, the boat was about 100 yards offshore. We don't know how far it was when Jesus initially called to them, but it's safe to say they couldn't see him very well. It's early morning. They, They couldn't recognize him by sight. So Jesus is present with them. But like Mary and John 20, they did not recognize him by seeing. They couldn't see him. So Jesus speaks to them, children, do you have any fish? And again, it's like with Mary and John 20, Jesus addresses them uh, with affection and, and with kindness as if he knows them. And in response, they say no. So Jesus in turn says, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some fish. Now, for some of you, hopefully you are 
you are making the connection with Luke 5, which happened early in Jesus's ministry and also involved a miraculous catch on the Sea of Galilee. The event is, is pretty similar to this one and involved the same disciples and resulted uh, with you know, Jesus saying, no, 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 cast your net on the other side of the boat. And, and in Jesus repeating the promise at the end of the event, repeating the promise he first made to Peter that he would may, be a fisher of men. So the difference between the two events is that with the first one, Peter questioned Jesus's directions. As in, listen, man, I like you, but we've been fishing all night. We do this sort of thing for a living. I don't think putting the nets on the opposite side of the boat is really going to do anything as if fish are just hanging out another, what, 10 feet on the other side of this. But okay, Jesus, for your sake, yeah, we'll do it, man. This time in John 21, there's no questioning. There's no questioning. They do what Jesus commands and have immediate success. In verse 7, we read that John the beloved disciple recognizes Jesus right away. Presumably, like we saw with Mary and how, as Jesus says, like a sheep knows his, his shepherd's voice, he recognizes Jesus by his voice. But most likely, he also remembered the first miraculous catch of fish. I mean, how could he not, really? So, so John knows Jesus without seeing him. He can recognize his acts. He knows him by his speaking. And apparently, like at the empty tomb, Peter doesn't quite get it. So John proclaims the gospel to Peter. And it's simple. He says, it is the Lord. He's proclaiming the gospel to Peter. And Peter, in response, uh, puts his outer robe back on. And we can walk through why that is. I'm not going to take the time to do that detail. But he puts his outer robe back on and really reminiscent of Jonah throws himself into the sea, only unlike Jonah, he was not trying to run away from God. He was trying to get to God as fast as he could. In the meantime, the other disciples bring the boat into shore with the huge catch of fish. And when they get there, they find Jesus with a charcoal fire. And this is a detail that's reminiscent of the fire in the high priest's courtyard, which was also a charcoal fire, where Peter warming himself, denied Jesus three times. And Jesus has laid out bread and the typical Jewish sides that went with fish. It says there was bread and fish there, but there's really, if you look at the Greek text there, it's really kind of side dishes that, that go with, with the fish. Jesus just needs the main course, the fish itself, and has asked these disciples for it. So Peter, in turn, uh, he... He goes back on the boat. I, I, I imagine he's sopping wet here. He goes back on the boat and he, he grabs the net and there they go. Now, as a quick aside, a lot has been made about the significance of the number 153. And numbers do mean a great deal in the Bible. So numbers in the Bible often do purposely hold symbolic significance. So you can name a number of them, right? 3, 7, 10, 12, 14, 40, 49, often 49 plus 1, 70 and 144 all show up routinely in the Bible and are there to bring your mind to attention. Be like, uh-oh, what is this text telling me? What should I be paying attention to? And if you see those numbers show up, you, you really are supposed to make connections with other things and with other events. And, and even in our passage, 
that there were seven disciples in the boat is not merely a number, but points to the group, like we see in the book of Revelation, as a symbol of the church. But with this number 153, I I think it really is just a big catch. And if you read through the scholarship, there is a lot of mental gymnastics trying to make something out of 153 that I, I just don't think is there. And I think it's there because it's a memorable number. Because more than likely, they took out the fish and said, well, how many was it? Let's count. And they, and they, they remembered. So Jesus invited them to breakfast, giving them the bread and the fish, just like with the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6, which led to another boat trip on, you probably guessed it, the Sea of Galilee, after which Jesus taught that he is the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So John tells us in verse 12 that, that none of the disciples dared ask who this man was. They all knew it was the Lord. And notice he never said his name. He never announced it to him. And notice it's not merely Jesus. It is, as Thomas confessed, my Lord and my God. They all confess that he is Lord and they know he is God by what he has said and done for them. So remember how we we started the sermon just a few minutes ago. Like with any well-crafted movie, on the one hand, you can read the story and instantly understand what happened and get that Jesus is Lord, which is exactly what John intended. But like so much of scripture, you are meant to grow into this story and make connections with other parts of John's gospel, let alone the wider canon of scripture and see deeper into it, which is also exactly what John intended as well. It's why if you read through the book of Revelation, you will really struggle with the imagery there if you haven't spent a long time in the imagery of the Old Testament. You know, some of that goes all the way back to the plagues of Egypt. In fact, a lot of the ways you know, uh, scholars talk about the book of Revelation is like they put major prophets in a blender and just hit blend, right? The way it throws all this imagery of the Old Testament together. And you're supposed to catch that. So the question John is answering in our passage is not so much what happened next, which is how I think modern readers want to read it, but rather how will Jesus reveal himself to those who, unlike the disciples, did not get the chance to see him. Well, what have we seen in this passage? First, apart from Jesus, there is no harvest or fruit or miraculous catch of fish. These men can go as hard as they possibly can go at a job at which they are experts and nothing will happen if Jesus is not with them. Now, this very real historical event, like with the feeding of the 5,000, is a metaphor for their calling to be fishers of men. Are they actually fishing? Yes. Does Jesus intend to teach them about how their new mission to the Gentiles and to the Israelites will work? Yes. They will go out into the Gentile world, the nations, and have a mighty catch. And we see this beginning with Pentecost, but it will not happen in their own strength. The harvest comes by Jesus working through his people. 
Now, in one sense, this is just the reestablishment of what God intended for Adam and Eve in the garden. That is, we are called to image God in the world and live by his word. God has always wanted to make his name known by humans. That is what image bearers are. But in another sense, this tells us something critical about how we should think about not only our spiritual labors, which we have spiritual labors and callings, but our daily vocations. So, for example, I've never, I've never led someone to faith, and I can count zero converts to my resume. Zero. The reason I say that is not because I have failed to do evangelism or to preach the word. I do that every single week. No, it's because it's not my word. It's not my harvest. It's not my anything. I didn't lead anybody anywhere. I didn't convert anyone. It's all Christ. Now, I, I cast, cast a net in obedience. And by the way, he equipped me to do that. And he, well, he gave me the net. And he does everything else too. It's all his work. And he gets all the glory. What's so fascinating is that Jesus told them where to fish. He produced the catch itself, then asked them to bring their catch, the fruit of their labor, as he put it, that he gave to them. And he did all of this for a meal he was preparing for them to enjoy with them. And God gives us fruitful labor and in turn asks us to give a small portion back to him and uses that, that small portion, to have communion with him. After all, think about it. Do you think they ate all 153 fish at that sitting? No, of course not. They were given that abundance, that, that, that abundance, excuse me, that flourishing. Now, second, though they could not recognize Jesus by sight, by his word, they knew him without seeing him. And in turn, their work was blessed. So how was the resurrected Jesus revealed to them this third time? By his word. How will Jesus be revealed in the days and the years and the ages to come after this event? By his word. It's why we rightly think of this word as living and active. This is not merely, as we think of scripture, an account of God's word. God continues to speak through these words. It's why I would contend to my dying breath, the Bible is unlike any other book there is. I know Jesus. I have met Jesus. I know his voice. I walk with Jesus and I have never seen Jesus. And if you are a Christian, that is true of you too. Now third, Jesus here is revealed also by eating with his people. Now keep in mind these men don't merely represent what the church would become. At this point in history, they are the church. So as every commentator I read agreed, John is showing us that Jesus would be, be revealed to those who do not see him by what we think of as word and sacrament. So for example, just, just go read the book of Acts or really any of Paul's letters and you will see these two things emphasized. How do people come to a saving faith? By the word of God both preached and read. What happens at Pentecost, for example? 
Peter preaches, and like the great catch of fish, thousands come to faith and are in turn baptized into Christ. They are marked off in him. Soon after, one of the most important descriptions of the growing church is that they were dedicated to the apostles' teaching, really devoted to the apostles' teaching, which was the word about Christ and eating together, which most scholars take to be the regular partaking of the Lord's Supper. True Orthodox worship of the triune God. And we see this, by the way, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. I could trace it for you. Involves devotion to his word and the privilege of eating at his table. It's why I think John Calvin rightly describes the Lord's Supper, for example, as a visible word that goes right alongside the preached word. Calvin wasn't saying anything that wasn't already said by the earliest Christian writers we have. It's why, for example, I devote the vast majority of my weekly time, my work as your pastor to the word of God in prayer and not to projects or programs. Now, I'm not against projects or programs, but some modern churches have replaced their callings as churches for businesses and their pastors look more like businessmen or CEOs. We are not called to be in the practice of busyness. We are in the practice of being centered on Christ in word and sacrament when we come here. You have busyness in the world. And business matters. I'm all for it. But as a church gathered together, we are to be gathered around word and sacrament. I'm going to talk about this more next week. But, you know, my, my job, as, as the apostles modeled it, modeled it, is to be devoted to this word in order to teach it and proclaim it. Why? Because... It is through this word that Jesus is revealed. And as a pastor, what could possibly be more important for me to do for you? It's why everything about my week builds to and is centered on this worship service. In a certain sense, I never stop thinking about it. And because of that, and because of passages just like this one, we, we believe the Lord's Supper or the preaching of the word, for example, is not merely a ritual like, say, the Pledge of Allegiance. And we think there's a lot of meaning in that. No, it's a visible word by which God reveals himself in his son through the spirit, building his people up in faith and love. And we believe Jesus is really and truly present in the Lord's Supper, that he truly reveals himself like what we see in John 21 in this simple meal. So, for example, when I say... Let me encourage you when this happens. When I say the words of institution, just pay attention. When I say the words of institution, I say that the Lord Jesus Christ in the same night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples as I, ministering in his name, give it to you. So what Jesus did for his disciples in their sight, he in turn did through his disciples with his people who could not see him. And in turn does the same thing for us in our small church in Greenville, Alabama, some 2,000 years later. So how does Jesus, by his own choice, reveal himself to those who have not seen him? By his word, 
Not only the written word, but that written word proclaimed and taught in his church, handed down generation after generation that is sharper than any two-edged sword and is capable of killing and making alive. But also by his sacraments in which God marks us out as belonging to him, that's baptism, and invites us to eat in fellowship with him, which is the Lord's Supper. And again, I encourage you, just start reading the Old Testament. You see God pursuing his people every time with food every last time. And in both these actions, word and sacrament, Jesus has promised to reveal himself and commune with us. And as we said last week, these means of grace are both necessary and they are sufficient for salvation and building us up in faith. You don't need anything more. You don't need anything more and you won't find anything better than what Jesus himself gave to his people. Now, our temptation is hyper-individualistic Americans is either to devalue or disregard these good gifts in search of something more exciting or more palatable or whatever, or we want to make use of, of these things on our own and in our own timing. It's why, for example, during the pandemic, when we were not meeting in person, we did not celebrate the Lord's Supper. We did not. We would, some churches did that. We would not. Never do you see in the Old Testament or the New Testament the people of God doing sacramental meals as individuals or on their own. You just don't. With the word, we want to be able, uh, this is my temptation too, we want to be able to listen to a podcast or a YouTube clip or whatever or read a book on our own time as, as we, we feel like it. And we don't want to have to be bothered with having to commit to a church and showing up faithfully week in and week out with other people to hear that word preached. We don't want to have to conform our lives to a people God has set apart for himself. We want to have these gifts on our own terms. So for example, some of the excuses people regularly give me for why it's so hard to show up to church would be really humorous. I mean, some of them are in the vein of the dog ate my homework. And and I know how this works because I've been there too. When I was in seminary, and I learned this from from other friends, I named my bed the Word. So on Sunday mornings, if I felt like sleeping in and friends said, hey, where were you in church this morning? I said, ah, I was in the Word all morning. Right? And they go, oh, it's very spiritual. It's very holy. No, I'm a liar. Right? I was a liar. And it tells you everything you needed to know about me as a seminarian. I was a moron. And I was immature, right? And all of this stuff would be hilarious and really funny if it wasn't so tragic. I was a moron in seminary. You know, what we so often miss is that, you know, people, they're not insulting me or hurting my feelings as if the worship service is about me. I'm just a Levite, man. That's my job. I'm the Levite. No, they are denying for themselves, really rejecting the good gifts God has given to his people for knowing him. And it's heartbreaking. And what we see over and over again in both Testaments is that God gives these gifts. He makes his present known uh, sometimes to individuals, for sure. But more often than not, to his people together. That's why when you read the book of Revelation, what do you see? It is a gigantic mass of people together. You know, after all, when he answered Thomas's doubts, 
He did so in community. The community of this little fledgling church. Well, so too here in John 21. He reveals himself through word and sacrament, as we would put it, by speaking and eating to these seven disciples who were the church. And these are good gifts. They are good gifts from God given to his people together that reveal him and grow us in faith. So let us not, like Israel in the Old Testament so often did, let us not grumble or groan that we have to come together with the people to receive these gifts. No, like Peter diving into the sea, let's see this gathering how God would have us to see it as a treasury, really as a treasury of his love for us. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're so good. You are patient and you are steadfast. You remain faithful to us even when we routinely break covenant with you, even when we routinely can grow hard in heart, can pursue our own ends, can pursue everything but you. Lord, turn us back, I pray. Move in us in our hearts and our minds to see just what good treasures, good gifts we have in you and how you continually reveal yourself to us through your word, through things like the sacraments, prayer, and even fellowship. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.